Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is another edition of the WNBA Looking at the Landscape. So Jalen and I chose three topics that are the biggest topics right now in the WNBA, and we're going to discuss them throughout this episode. So Jalen, what is the first topic that you're going to talk about? So I think the first topic that I want to get into is the Connecticut Sun, man. I think that they are slowly kind of falling down the totem pole, not talent-wise. I think they're still in the mix for the championship, but they're 9-5 and five, um, through their first 14 games, third, third in the Eastern Conference, a little bit lower on the totem pole overall in the WNBA. They don't look like the number one team in the league anymore, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that their star player, John Quill Jones, is out due to playing over, um, overseas in international play. Ryan, there's a couple of things that really come to mind um, in terms of their circumstances with missing JJ in uh, over these last four games. First thing is they're one in three in the last four games. That's the first thing that obviously stands out. The second thing that stands out to me significantly is the difference in point total average when you go down the list, so starting with John Cole Jones, she has 21.6 points per game, not to, to her name, when it comes to this team's offensive production. The next best player after that is Dewana Bonner at 16.6. I think another thing that obviously stands out off the top is the rebounds per game. Again, Dewana Bonner is usually her robin in these situations. She has 7.4 7. rebounds. Jones is averaging 10.4 boards a game. I think that's one of those big things that really kind of shows up on a regular basis. And I think that it's kind of one of those things that's been hurting them to a certain extent when you talk about what they've been able to do on the floor. I think another thing that just flat out stands out overall is just her overall presence is one of those things down low that has been able to give them um, a lot of aggression offensively. I think that one of the biggest things that they've been able to do in the meantime is they've been able to get a little bit of, um, production in that center position from Brianna Jones in the meantime and that's been one of those things that's really stood out to me is there is uh her production on the floor and John Cole Jones's absence um most recently uh Brianna Jones dropped 26 and 5 in a game against the Dallas Wings my Dallas Wings unfortunately in these circumstances um where they were able to win a game in a knock knockout drag out kind of battle where they won 80 to 70 in a game in that game I think that that shows their line of depth that they have but I still think that the mere presence that Jonquil has on the floor is one of those things that genuinely uh, drives this team in terms of being a legit uh, championship contender. And I think right now they are really feeling the uh, the effects of losing somebody of her caliber. I think the big thing for this team, and it was something I mentioned in the last WNBA episode, was that Dewana Bonner was going to be the player that I think was going to carry this team. She's been having some pretty good games thus far, but we're really trying to find out who the second option is because normally – it would be Dewana Bonner in this situation, but Dewana Bonner is the first option now that John Quill Jones is unavailable. It looks like it was the next month or two that she would be out. But um, yeah, I think Dewana Bonner is really going to have to carry this team forward. I think Brianna Jones having a big game against Dallas really helps because it does give you that sense that maybe she could be the second option. I think another player, in my opinion, that I think needs to be 
a player that is more involved in the offense now that John Quall Jones is out is Natisha Heideman because she was one of the more consistent three-point shooters, not only on this team, but in the entire league. And she didn't get a lot of playing time in that Dallas Wings game that you mentioned. So I think that's going to be the big thing going forward. But Jalen, maybe I can get your perspective on this because I feel like out of Brianna Jones and Natisha Heideman, I think Brianna Jones has the ability to be the second option. But what do you think? I think that you're probably right. I think the biggest thing with Natisha too is the fact that, you know, ever since the guard lineup got kind of solidified, right? When we, once we kind of got things back to normal in terms of Jasmine Thomas and um and Brian Jan, uh Brian January both being in the backcourt, specifically January coming back from injury, Natisha has taken a significant step back, not only in terms of her production, but her minutes on the floor, like you touched on beforehand, talking about the Dallas Wings game just barely cracked double digits with 12 minutes in that game and only had two assists, 0.0 rebounds in the game. Ryan, I know she's no rookie, but this kind of still applies to the same circumstance that we talk about with a lot of these other rookies, mainly, you know, we point in the direction of the Indiana fever most times, but I think the same type of thing applies in a situation like this, dude, shooters going to shoot. And I think one of the circumstances in this is you can't really get a shooter's rhythm playing only 12 minutes in a game. Now I do understand the heat of the moment you're playing a Dallas wings team that is on the uptick. And I think that it's, always going to be very important to try to be able to keep yourself um, on a straight and narrow, even in the midst of missing out on an MVP caliber player like John Quill Jones. Right. But I think that in the circumstances that we're looking at moving forward, I think that Jones has the better opportunity, not only because of the ability that she has, um, has to be, you know, dominant on the offense of a defensive glass. But I think the mere fact that I think the two-man game of her and Bonner is still translatable in a way that's similar to Jonquil Jones being on the floor. Um, Jonquil Jones has that ability to stretch the floor that I think is the big wild card that pushes her over the top and puts her into that, you know, top five MVP caliber status. But I still think that uh, Brianna Jones does so many things that are similar to John Quell that that's what's been able to keep them kind of afloat. Now, at the end of the day, bro, like I said before, you lose somebody of that caliber, like I said before, one and three in their last four games. But you have to also we have to make sure that we add a little bit of context. That's always kind of important in these kind of circumstances. When you think about who they lost to, they lost to the Chicago Sky twice. We're going to probably talk about them a little bit later on with the way that they've played. They had them in back-to-back games. And then the Seattle Storm, you're missing your best player and you're playing, what, I would say two of arguably the top four, top five teams in the entire WNBA, context says that circumstantially you're going to lose. The question is by how much. Um, I think the fact that they were very competitive in the games against the Sky is really important. Um, the Seattle Storm game was the first game without John Quill Jones. So, of course, losing 89 to 66 to a high, high volume offensive uh, juggernaut in Seattle, in Seattle. I don't think that's entirely crazy. And then, of course, picking up the game against Dallas, I think that's huge because despite the fact that Dallas is a young team on the rise, they're still a team that's going to be vying for playoff position legitimately. And I think that could be a dangerous, uh, you know, potential first or second round matchup moving forward. So it's a good way to get one of those wins and get the dominating, uh, get the the dominating mindset early uh, ahead of a Dallas Wings team that you might see in the postseason. And we're mentioning the Dallas Wings a lot. And that's actually my first topic for this WNBA episode. Jalen, I know you put me onto the Dallas Wings. 
but it's time to put our listeners onto the Dallas Wings because it's time to invest your stock in the Dallas Wings. This team is showing more and more potential as the season progresses, and Jalen, they've won most of their games convincingly, and they've kept it close consistently in their losses. All of their losses have come within 10 points. And keep that in mind because they have had one of the toughest schedules this season, and their record right now is 6-8, and eight, and they're 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games. This is a high-scoring offense, Jalen. They average 84 points a game, which is third in the WNBA. They lead the league in rebounds with just over 38 a game. And this offensive powerhouse, I would say, kind of starts with Arike Gumbuale, who's averaging over 20 points a game, which is fourth in the WNBA. And she's scored in the double figures in all of her games this season. And then Marina Mabry and Jalen, this has been another scoring option for the Dallas Wings as she averages 16 and a half points a game and just over five rebounds. But it might be safe to say that Marina Mabry is in the conversation for most improved player in the WNBA. And then we also factor in players like Satu Sabale and Alicia Gray, who missed time at the beginning of the season, but they're contributing now to the scoring for the Dallas Wings. So this is a team that is shooting the ball well from the field and from three this season. But this is a team that needs to win games. So even though it's great that they're keeping it close with some of the top teams in the league, Jalen, these close losses could be the reason why they missed the playoffs. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing to touch on is the fact that they're in knockout, drag down kind of games in terms of this ability to close games. And because they're so young, that's going to show up in some games. And in other games, they're going to pull through and it's going to be significant um, on the stat sheet across the board where you're going to see maybe two, three, maybe even four players in double figures and playing really well. Um, obviously, Arike is at the top of the list in terms of being able to keep this team held down, like you said beforehand. But I, I've said this before, the 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 infusion of Alicia Gray and Satu Sabali who are coming from international play. I think that's the big key for them, right? They're still trying to integrate those two in. We have to remember how young this team is. Awakuyer has only played five games this year. She was taking second overall. Like, like really keep that in mind when you're really paying attention to this team. Same thing with Charlie Collier. She's She was taking number one overall, and although she's played in every single game, the minutes are limited. I mean, significantly limited. She's one of probably – she's probably in the bottom five, I believe, on the entire roster in minutes played, despite the fact that she was taking number one overall. I think that that's something that's really important to kind of look at when you talk about this team. I mean, even when you look at um, some of their other circumstances, um, they just recently acquired Dana Evans. That was one of those bigger things that was important. Chelsea Dungy is another player that hasn't really gotten a lot of PT for them as well. I think that's something that you could kind of see moving down the line. They'll try to focus more on the development. I think in an interesting year like this, we're not going to see those players get a lot of burn. But I think that puts more emphasis on a player that I've mentioned a lot when talking about Dallas in Isabel Harrison, somebody that's played significantly well at the center position, a position averaging pretty decent numbers in terms of 7.9 points per game, 6.1 rebounds per game. I think that that's huge. Leads the team with uh, or second on the team with 23 offensive rebounds on the um, overall. Um, that's second only behind Kayla Thornton with 27. I mean, realistically, I think as Gray and Sabali start to con- start to kind of get their rhythm and continue to kind of integrate themselves into what this version of the team is, I think that's going to be huge. And I think your Marina Mabry point about most improved player, spot on, 
spot on. I think in a circumstance like this, I think moving forward, it's going to be really important to see how she continues to develop. But Ryan, here's a couple of things that I think are just really interesting about her circumstances this season, right? Third on her team in assists per game uh, and assists overall with 42 assists on the, um, on the year. I think she's actually like, uh, I think she's actually third or fourth on her team. She, I think she actually is third overall in terms of assists per game on her team. Third, um, in terms of assist total on her team. She has 18 steals, which is tied for number one on her own team, along with Arike Gumbawale with 18 steals. She has five blocks in the backcourt. Five blocks. Arike has zero. That goes to tell you the circumstances of her being that off guard locking up on the defensive end. And I think the other thing that's extremely huge when you look at her circumstances specifically is let's get to that three-point percentage, bro. 38.6% from Trey Pound on 88 attempts from that deep. I think that that's one, um, that's one of those things that's going to be extremely, extremely pivotal in terms of this team's ability to not only maybe make the playoffs, but also make some serious noise in there. So the Mabry point, I think, is a, bit, a very huge one. And I think when we're talking about players like Bagumbawale and Mabry, two of the top scorers on this team, I think that's really where it starts because when you have a player like Arika Gumbawale who is a bucket getter and then you have Marina Mabry, like you said, an off guard, plays a lot of defense. I think that there's a lot to like about this Dallas Wings team. They also, I believe I made this point a couple of episodes ago, they have one of the top scoring benches in the WNBA as well. So obviously when you get that extra bench scoring, that helps. I do think that the 6-8 record right now I don't think that that will last very long. I do think that they're going to win more games, especially with how close they play a lot of the top teams like Connecticut, Seattle, and Las Vegas. But Jalen, what is the second topic that you're going to talk about in this episode? I think the second thing that I want to touch on is uh, the hometown team, I guess, in our circumstances, being in the DMV area. And talk about the Washington Mystics, bro. Definitely have turned things around um, after a really rocky start to the season they have really turned things around in a good way i mean overall they have just been on a a bit of a tear they won uh they won three games in a row as of recent before um uh you know heading into tomorrow's game against the sparks uh we're recording this on uh on wednesday uh, the 23rd. So this will be a game on the 24th against Los Angeles that I think is very winnable for them, by the way, but they've gotten three straight wins in a row um, against the Atlanta dream, Indiana fever. And then the big boy one is winning 87 to 83 over the Seattle storm. And this is literally terrifying in terms of how much Tina Charles is asked to do on a regular basis. This is a team that is like in the, I think, I believe they're like top four, top five record wise, which is not saying a ton right now, considering that things are still kind of shaping themselves out. But Tina Charles is carrying this team and it's almost video game-esque. 25.3 points per game, 9.6 rebounds per game. Ryan, she has 36 offensive rebounds. The next player on the list um, for this team is Lelani Mitchell with 19, um, or Erica McCall, I apologize, with 19 offensive rebounds. Another thing that's really terrifying to me is the overall rebounding volume that she has. 115 total rebounds. The, the bizarreness of that is the next closest is 61. 61. 
I repeat, 115 to lead her team in rebounding with the next player being the closest, having 61 total rebounds. That is some of the most insane stuff I've ever seen. I think that it's really intriguing overall that she's been able to carry so much. This is a former MVP. We shouldn't sleep on that. I think that that's one of those things that's extremely important. She also leads the team in minutes, not by too much. She's only over Ariel Atkins by one minute, but 390 minutes played so far through 12 games um, this season. Maisha, uh, Maisha Hines-Allen, bro, the, the ability of her coming back um, – from overseas play along with Ariel Atkins stepping up within her secondary role. They're combining for about, about 32 points per game right now um, alongside Tina Charles. I think that three-headed monster is extremely uh, – or is going to be extremely important moving forward while they still wait for some of their star players to get back on the floor. Um, extremely disappointed, though, and I hate that I keep using the word extremely, but I think some of these things are just that important. Um, the the uh, the lack of presence felt by Natasha Cloud is something that's going to keep plaguing me. I feel like I've brought this up every single time that I talk about Washington, so I apologize if I'm beating a dead horse here. But she's third in the on, on the team in minutes at 361 minutes played in tw- through 12 games, and she's having averaging 6.9 points per game. Like that's not great. Now I now I will say she's been leading. She leads the team in assists with 5.7 assists per game. She's well and beyond everybody else in total assists with 68 next closest is 38 uh tied between ariel atkins and then i believe like i believe it is uh lalani mitchell that has 38 as well so i mean far and away she has been great as a facilitator for this team but her lack of uh a scoring threat or i guess her inability to be a real scoring threat on the floor has been something that's been really underwhelming but Washington has really turned their season around. Ryan, I think you were one of the first people um, that I've talked to about Washington that said pump the brakes in terms of freaking out about them having a very rough start to the season. And so far, they're they're proving you right. Yeah, and I think that with the Washington Mystics, especially with how great Tina Charles has been playing, I think it's impressive that they're able to turn it around. And I'm glad that they're able to turn it around because I think that this team has that capability to make the championship as soon as – they get all their players back. And I'm talking about Elena Deladon and Emma Miesemann. But here's the thing that's concerning me, Jalen. And I've been kind of thinking about this past couple of days as I watched the Washington Mystics play. Where would this team be if Tina Charles was hurt? And I think that's the big question right now because you talk about the big gap in terms of rebounds and the big gap in terms of scoring Tina Charles has a massive impact on this team, considering that she's already up for the MVP. It looks like she'll be up for MVP this year. And how much of of an effect on the offensive and defensive defensive side that she has, I'm worried that this team really doesn't have a true second option. Now, I think that Maisha Hines-Allen has kind of grown into that role of being the second option, which is great. I do want to see Tasha Cloud improve because when she's healthy, she's a great scoring guard. But she's not scoring as much as we think she is. And she hasn't been putting up the same, the same numbers that she has been in the past. So there is that level of concern that I have, but I think I'm just really concerned about what this team would look like if Tina Charles was hurt. And I think now we are in week six of the WNBA season. So we're kind of trying to see 
who is going to stand out right now at this point in the season and possibly make a run at the playoffs. I think with the way that Tina Charles is playing, the Mystics could be a fifth seed. I think they could be a fifth seed at best. They could miss the playoffs at worst. But again, we have to factor in the fact that there's no Emma Misaman, no Elena Deladon. So I think if they're able to get them back, maybe that could turn the tide and definitely improve the record of the Washington Mystics. But nonetheless, this is impressive. I'm glad that the Washington Mystics have turned it around, especially with coach Mike Thibault. He's a legendary coach in the WNBA. So I'm glad that they are able to turn it around at this point. But I want to pose this question to you, Jalen, about the Mystics, because again, no Deladon and no Misaman, no Misaman until August. We don't really know about Deladon's timetable. How important is it for a player like Tasha Cloud to be an integral part in this offense? Because we've seen, we've seen how great Tina Charles is. We've also seen Maisha Hines Allen improve and start to slowly become a second option. So how important is it for Tasha Cloud to get involved in this offense? I mean, I think it's a big deal, but I I think that's more so for their ability to really flex their muscles as a team that deserves to be playoff playoff bound. I think um, to go back to your statement, or I guess it was more so of a question that you were wondering about, was that whole thing about uh, what would this team look like without Tina Charles, our best um our best game representation of that, I guess, at least in recent memory, was the game against uh, against uh, Atlanta on June 17th. They won 96 to 93. She actually missed that game. That was a game where Ariel Atkins went for 32, um, a game where Teresa Plus, uh, Placence, I hope I said her name right, dropped 25 and 6. And Natasha Cloud, although she only had 10, pound, 10 points, she had a near triple-double with 11 assists and nine rebounds in the game plan, a team-high 36 minutes. So I think that although, yes, I know that like the ideal for me when I look at her in this backcourt is to be more of a scoring threat. And I could understand why maybe that's not necessary for this team. But asking Tina Charles to drop 30 plus a night, although is a tall task, is not the craziest thing to ask her. I think expecting her to drop drop that kind of uh, volume on a nightly basis is tough because I'll go to the Atlanta dream matchup that they had right before that victory where Tina draw Charles drops 13 and seven in 28 minutes and they get blown out 101 to 78. So literally what you're telling me is in certain circumstances like that, you're putting me in a circumstance, you're putting me in a situation where I have to believe that essentially if Tina Charles doesn't drop old OD numbers, they're not going to even be in the ball game. And even when she does, I'll look at a matchup that they had on May 23rd against Indiana. She dropped 31 points in that game and they still lost 89 to 77. That's against Indiana. We have to remember this is a team. This is an Indiana team that has barely notched any wins on their, on their resume. And of course, this is around the time that both of these teams were struggling, but Tina Charles dropped 31 and nine, Natasha cloud five, two and two. So I think that what you're basically saying is that when we're talking about Natasha Cloud's impact in this in this circumstance for 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 the Mystics, I would say that she has to be a player that if she's not going to give you 15 a night, then she has to give you somewhere around seven or eight plus in the other two major categories, being rebounds and assists. I think if that's something she could do consistently then we won't worry too much about her point total. But I think her ability to be a facilitator, her ability to be on the glass as a guard, 
and help with pushing the offense, being more uh, being more uh, fast break oriented. Um, I think that's another big thing that could be big for them uh, because I think that that low block uh, volume that you're asking for Tina Charles is going to be hard to maintain over the course of an entire season. I still believe what I said earlier on the year, which is stick to your bread and butter of being a down low team. And I think that that still, still stands to this day. But at the end of the day, your guards got to give you some kind of help. Ariel Atkins is doing her part. Natasha Cloud is kind of the other one who has to kind of make sure that she's chipping in nightly. And you mentioned two players that I didn't mention at all, Ariel Atkins and Teresa Placentz. They were two players that in that Atlanta Dream, uh, Atlanta Dream Washington Mystics game, the most recent one, they were two players that not only stood out, but you could tell that they were going to be solid contributors on this team. And Ariel Atkins is somebody that I completely forgot to mention in the conversation about being a second option because Ariel Atkins in the past couple of games has really proven that she can be a top scorer for this Mystics team. And then, of course, with Teresa Playsense, I think that when we're talking about the, the game plan of playing down low and just sticking to what you're and, and sticking to your bread and butter, she pretty much defines that, that she's somebody that you can rely on in the post, somebody that you can rely on in the paint to get you buckets down low. So I think that's what, what Coach Thiebault has to rely on the most is that use your strengths instead of relying on your weaknesses. Your strengths are getting down into the post, getting, down to, getting to the paint, and getting buckets down low, not shooting threes and taking mid-range shots. So I think that's going to be the big thing for the Mystics going forward, just sticking to the game plan and just to see and just getting a lot of the players back that they lost in Emma Mieserman and Elena Deladon. The second team I want to talk about for this topic is the Atlanta Dream. And Jalen, I'm starting to get concerned about the Atlanta Dream. After starting the season four and two, they've only won one game since. And like you mentioned, it was a huge win over the Mystics. They have one of the best offenses in the league as they rank third in the league with just over 84 points a game scored on offense. And they also lead the WNBA steals at WNBA in steals with just under 10 a game. However, Jalen, this team allows just over 87 points per game on defense, which is second worst in the league. And in the five losses since their four and two start, they've allowed over 85 points in all five of their losses. Now, I know offense is a big thing for the Atlanta Dream. And I said whenever this team scores 90 or more points, they win games. Not to mention also this team is fifth in offensive rating. But I was proven wrong by their last game against the Mystics when they lost a close game and they scored 93 points. So they need to improve on their defense because in close games like the one against the Mystics, you need to get stops down the stretch. And I will say that Courtney Williams is playing some of her best basketball. Maybe part of the struggles is that Kennedy Carter isn't playing for this team right now. But nonetheless, if they can improve on defense, they can win some more games considering how good their offense has been this season. Yeah, um, I'm going to piggyback on that last statement that you made beforehand talking about Kennedy Carter. I think that's the biggest one, right? She's only played six games this year. Um, and we have to talk about the fact that she has she's going to miss a lot of time um, due to, I mean, you look at the hyperextended elbow, you talk about the fact that she also has been in a circumstance where she remember last year, she actually missed some time with a um, an ankle injury as well. I think it was her left ankle uh, that she suffered a sprain for that took her out for about two weeks then. So she she's pretty banged up, you know what I mean? And that, I think that's, 
That's a tough one because, you know, I had this slip up last uh, pod where I was talking about their backcourt and I I had to catch myself midway through because I'm so used to them having a three-headed monster and I had to adjust that, talking about Tiffany Hayes and Courtney Williams being the two-headed monster in the backcourt. And I was so concerned because I had looked down at some of the box scores and it almost... I, I know looking back at the highlights, I understood that Kennedy Carter's presence wasn't there, but until you really see how it added up within the flow of the game, um, not only through the tape, but also just in the box score, it makes you really realize like what, what her real, what, what her real impact is overall. I mean, let's just look at some of the more important things that come to mind. So you talk about the trio, all of them averaged at least 15 plus points a game. Hayes was 17.6. Williams was 16.9. And then Kennedy Carter with 15.7, only through six games, mind you, that she only played half the season so far in terms of this start. Um, you look at what Kennedy Carter also provides, all three guards average at least three assists per game, just in the backcourt alone, they add up to about put them at about 11 assists per game as a full backcourt. I think that's something that's extremely important too, talking about their facilitation. And Kennedy Carter was actually second out of those three in that category. So I think that's huge too. And then I think the other thing is this, bro. I think the other thing overall is just her her presence as an outside shooter, I think is probably the other thing that really stands out to me. Um, she didn't really get that many up. She only took six threes in the games that she played. I think that that's something that could have definitely got up as we went along, but I think her ability to drive, I think the fact that she is so dangerous in the mid range as well, she just presents a lot of like offensive, uh, she presents a really nice offensive skill package that I think really keeps defense on their toes when you add that third ball handler to this backcourt. And that three guard lineup was really interesting, uh, because it it's kind of an uh, it might be a stretch to a certain extent, but it kind of reminds me of what OKC did a year ago, talking about the Chris Paul, Dennis Schroeder, Shea Gilgis Alexander lineup. Uh, no homage to the jersey being worn at the moment, but I say that to I say that because I feel like the effectiveness of these three guards is that you have three players on the court at all times that can pass, dribble, and shoot. And I know that sounds very basic when saying it out loud, like isn't that basketball in its totality? Yes, but you have to think about it within the league, within league play. Those skills are even more important when talking about going up against some of these high-level teams on a night-in, night-out basis. So I think having Kennedy Carter not on the floor is tough, and it's forced a player like Odyssey Sims, for example, to really step up her game, and I just don't know if she's the same offensive threat that Carter is. And I think you make a great point considering that this team – without Kennedy Carter has not been the same on both sides of the floor. And I think when we're talking about other players like Courtney Williams and Tiffany Hayes, who have really had to step up, both of them have taken to the challenge for sure. And Courtney Williams has become a, has become the number one option for this team. Tiffany Hayes, keep in mind, she wasn't even playing for this team last year in the WNBA bubble. So I think that's also interesting to keep in mind. And it just seems like her impact is now being felt this year considering that she's playing with the Atlanta dream. And now when you think about how good the Atlanta dream were early on in the season, I think a lot of that has just been because of the fact that they missed Kennedy or that they've had Kennedy Carter. And I think with, without Kennedy Carter, I do think that this team is going to struggle on both sides of the floor, 
because she is she is a threat on both sides of the floor. But I feel like this team, when they get her back, this could be a team in the playoffs with a three-headed monster, like t- with Tiffany Hayes, Courtney Williams, and Candy Carter. That could be dangerous going into the playoffs. I also do agree with you. I think Odyssey Sims is kind of playing out of her element because she is a forward and she's playing as a two guard. So I think that maybe getting Odyssey back to her natural position as a small forward is probably better than having her as a two guard, considering that you have a player like Ari McDonald, who's on the bench and not getting a lot of minutes and you drafted with the third overall pick. I definitely would play Ari McDonald a little bit more just to get her not only exposure to how the to the WNBA style of play, but also considering what she did in college, she was a bucket getter in college. So I think that's going to be very interesting to see going forward, especially with how this team performs in games without Candy Carter. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, too, is something that's really plagued me with this team is that I think their reliance on the backcourt is a little too much now this is like one of those things where it's the reverse version of the washington mystics when you talk about the fact that the backcourt is actually kind of doing half its job and the fact that ariel atkins has been so productive but you could argue that natasha cloud has not been very much of an offensive threat for this team so far i think it actually works in reverse when you talk about atlanta you look at tiffany hayes you look at courtney williams you look at kennedy carter's time on the floor very effective leading the team in scoring by a wide margin but then let's flip the script to tiana uh, tiana hawkins let's flip the script to monique billings for example those are two players that have to show up in the front court they have to Right, there's too many teams that have effective forward play. Connecticut, for example, even with John Cole Jones out, Dewana Bonner, problem. Seattle, we, we could go in in on that circumstance, no matter how you want to go about it, if we're going to be real. I think another thing is that just rebounding-wise in general, they need to be more uh, aggressive. We talk about those two in, um, in the front court once again, both averaging 5.4 rebounds per game. Courtney Williams in the backcourt is averaging 7.1 rebounds per game. Problem. I think that's an I think that's a huge, huge problem. Um, I do think um maybe before we transition to my next topic, I do want to get your take on this. Um, so talking about Ari McDonald, right? I think, is it too soon? And granted, she's played in 11 of the 12 games played so far, 158 minutes on the floor, 6.4 rebounds per game, uh, 6.4 points per game, 1.3 rebounds per game. She already has gotten up 61 shots (laughs) despite having limited minutes. Is it about time to let let the chain loose and see what she can do at that position um, as a third guard, especially considering what you said about Odyssey Sims need to be slid back to her normal position? Or do you feel like that is more of a reactionary move and that is still uh, we're still within that point in the season where walking Ari through things is probably the safest uh, route of contention? I think it's tough just because as a fan of Ari McDonald's game, I'm impressed with what she did in college. And I want to see her do the same. I want to see her translate her, her college games to the WNBA. 
But on the other hand, I do kind of think maybe it is a bit early. I know it's six weeks into the WNBA season, so maybe it isn't too early. But I do think giving Aerie more minutes, I don't think is a bad idea. I think that she could be a player that ends up coming off the bench as a sixth or seventh, uh, sixth or seventh in the rotation. This is a team that if you're that's so heavily, heavily reliant on the guard, on guard play, that I feel like they may have to go with what Houston did a year ago, with, with what the Houston Rockets did a, a year ago, which is just go all in on the small ball lineup. And I think it's not a bad idea with this team considering you have scores in your backcourt. But I think that giving Aerie more minutes, I think could be beneficial to not only her career, but also to the team considering that what she did in college was phenomenal. Now, what she does, what she's been doing in the WNBA, she's gotten the chance to kind of showcase her skills, but I don't think she's been in a prominent role to really showcase her skills. So I think it's tough for me. I do think that maybe the small ball lineup is the way to go for Atlanta, but they have enough talent to make a small ball lineup work, especially with how Elizabeth Williams and Tiffany Hayes have been playing in the front court. But honestly, I think it's going to be interesting to see going forward, whether or not Ari gets more minutes or she is going to, or she continues to just play the normal amount of minutes that she's been playing. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I worry about maybe is just your point that you made earlier about the fact that they've been so poor defensively. Um, obviously you switched it a small ball lineup unless you have a real defender out there, which I would maybe argue Courtney Williams is probably the better of the defenders that they would have on the floor. I would think that would be one of the things that would, they would take the biggest hit. I will say this. The only reason why I brought it to you as an idea was because they clearly are not very worried in the rebounding department as it is. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things that really hurts them. Um, because like I said beforehand, Tiana Hawkins, Monique Billings are averaging uh, 10 rebounds combined. Uh, the one who's really the, the player who's really setting them par- themselves apart in that department is uh, Elizabeth Williams with 5.4 rebounds. And that's still only second out of the three that uh, that we're talking about in that front court. So I I think that they're in a circumstance where I think maybe experimenting with small ball lineups might be uh really interesting i think completely taking a center off the floor would be a little tough to work with but we've seen crazier things as you mentioned in the uh the nba uh, landscape so i don't think that atlanta pulling a similar card is the craziest thing in the world but i think they're running into a circumstance right now where they're gonna have to shake things up a little bit because between the uh, not so great losing streaks and the uh, hot and cold streaks since there, you know, they started off kind of rough, turned things around with four in a row and kind of haven't really recovered very much after that. Um, I think we're in a circumstance now where Atlanta has to maybe stamp something a little drastic to make sure that they're keeping their season afloat. Maybe that's a little overreactionary, but uh, I mean, debatable. I think it's also tough to also mention that there are a lot of teams hovering around that 500 mark, like Mm -hmm. Chicago, Washington, New York, Atlanta, like we're talking about now, Minnesota, the list goes on and on, but there's a lot of teams that are hovering around that 500 mark and they're trying to separate themselves from the pack. If there was ever a time for Atlanta to make a move, it would be now, but moving on to our third and final topic for this episode. So 
Jalen, and I'll start with you. What's your third and final topic for this episode? So I think my third and final thing is something that might be a little drastic, but like this is the definition of like a hear me out take. And so my hear me out take is that I think that it's not a runaway decision, but I think Candace Parker should be number one, if not top three in MVP voting right now, if we're talking about the WNBA MVP race. And I think it's just out of the mere fact that when she's on the floor, Chicago does not lose. Um, this is a team that's on a six-game winning streak right now. And easily, easy, I don't want to say, well, easily might be a little drastic. But dating back to the end of May, this team could easily be on a 10-game winning streak. Let's just go back and look at some of the games that they lost without Parker on the floor. 82 to 79 in overtime against the Los Angeles Sparks on May 30th. 84 to 83 against the Phoenix Mercury on June 1st. 77 to 74 in overtime on June 3rd to the Mercury in a, in a, in a rematch. 68 to 63 um, is a, as another loss to yet again the Los Angeles Sparks. So two matchups apiece between Los Angeles and Phoenix, and they did not lose by double digits in any of them. If you really look at it overall, let's see, three, four, seven. They lost by a total of about 12 points overall over the course of four games, and that's with Candace Parker off the floor. I mean, that's insane. Then you move into that, that early portion of June State where you take down the fever twice. Minnesota Lynx, you get the sun twice. I think that one's huge. Yes, without John Cole Jones, that's one of those things that you can maybe throw an asterisk next to if you wanted to. But regardless, took down the sun twice as a tough team that still leans on Dewana Bonner at the top. And then another game that I think is huge is that the New York Liberty, who are on a bit of a downslide right now, also took a fat L, 92 to 72, in a game where once again, Sabrina Ionescu has kind of came up small, six points, seven assists, eight rebounds in 27 minutes, played the most minutes on the floor of anybody for the Liberty. So I think that uh, and, and in that game, if we want to get very, uh, uh, very specific about it, Candace Parker dropped 23 points, 12 rebounds and six assists in 23 minutes. So what I'm going to say is that although the counting stats overall may not look too crazy for Candace, if we just go through her season, 13.1 points per game, 1.1 blocks per game, 4.1 assists, 8.6 rebounds. It doesn't, nothing stands out extremely flashy to anybody to the point that you would scream MVP, even from, um, from an, a field goals attempt standpoint, she's only averaging 10 shots per game, which is like the, I think the third or fourth lowest of her entire career. And she's been in the league since 2008, not to make you seem old or anything. Candace 35 is still a young 23 as far as I'm concerned, but regardless of the circumstances, I think that you're in a situation where you look at her impact on winning on the floor. And yes, don't get me wrong. This Chicago team is deep. You go ahead and look at some of the players that they have on the squad to work with on Yenware um, is one of those players that I think um, for, for New York has been pretty effective, but let's talk about some of these other players. Let's talk about some of these other young players looking on the other side of things in terms of talking about Chicago, Kalia Copper, huge 
huge presence on the floor, despite the fact that she hasn't been, you know, getting crazy uh, uh, point totals. Diamond Shields, another young guard. Again, we talk about on Yenware, and I know we talk about this draft class, they're kind of separated. But we talk about the young crop of uh, guards around the league, Copper, the Shields, both huge players in that in that ilk. Then, of course, we have to talk about Courtney Vandersloot, obviously a walking, walking double digit assist maker when when healthy. I think that that's been huge as well. Quickly is back. Hibbert is back healthy. This team is deep. But at the end of the day, I think that Candace Parker is the engine that makes this team go. And MVP is most valuable player when you're undefeated. With a player of Candace Parker's caliber on the floor, you are very valuable. Hence me believing that she should be at least bare minimum top three, if not leading the pack in the MVP race. Sorry, John Cole Jones. Sorry, Tina Charles. I understand you guys are bucket getters, but Candace Parker is out here putting doves on the on the board, and that cannot be overlooked. Jalen, I'm glad you joined the bandwagon because I I've been saying this for a while on this podcast. I'm telling you, when when Chicago gets Candace Parker back, this team is going to be unstoppable. And looking at their past five games, they've really proven me right. Essentially, they're five and zero right now. If we also include the first game of the season, they're six and zero with Candace Parker. So this team has proven that they can win. And now at full strength, this team's even better now with Candace Parker on the floor. I think this is more or less the Candace Parker effect, much like with the NBA, the Chris Paul effect. I think that Candace Parker makes this team a lot better than what they already are on both sides of the floor, considering that she's a former MVP. She's, she's a she's the reigning defensive player of the year. She's proven her worth here in the WNBA as one of the greatest WNBA basketball players of all time. And She's doing it for a Chicago team that needs her on defense, considering that's something that Chicago struggled with last year. They were one of the one of the weaker defensive teams in the WNBA. So I do feel like now that they have Candace Parker back, this is a chance that now we can have the conversation about if this team are true title contenders, because I think with Candace Parker healthy, this team's unstoppable and they can win. But without her, that's where it starts to get a bit sketchy. This team has a lot of talent on it. Courtney Vandersloot, amazing facilitator for this team. Kalia Copper, she's a great scorer for this team. Allie Quigley is a phenomenal three-point shooter for this team. And then we also take into account Diamond the Shields and Stephanie Dolson, two other great players for this team. So I think that the Chicago team really has a chance to make a run at the WNBA championship this year, but it really just comes down to whether or not Candace Parker is healthy. Yeah, and I mean, let's think about Candace Parker defensively, right? Because I think that's where the presence is uh, most felt. And you mentioned it beforehand, coming off the defensive player of the year. Think about some of the players that this team has to rely on Candace to handle on a regular basis. Brianna Stewart, Aja Wilson. Uh, You can even look at some of the players like Satu Sabali, who plays forward for the Wings. Um, I think if you go down the list of players that are constantly going to be caught, I think that she can easily step in 
and be that primary defender on team's best uh, best player. I think right now, if you looked at, for example, despite being a more of a down low forward, Dewana Bonner would be probably the best front court player for Connecticut right now. That would be her primary assignment. I would say that when you look at uh, circumstances for the Mystics, I would say Maisha Hines Allen or Tina Charles would probably be her primary assignment. I wouldn't even be surprised if Tina was the one that she was guarding, despite the fact that I think there is a smidge height differential there. Um, you talk about the Liberty. I think that I think the obvious choice is Bettina Laney, who if she scores 20, New York probably wins the game or is at least close to being in the mix. The dream, you can throw it up however you want to. I think any of those guards can be in the case. I think that uh, the one that comes to mind is Courtney Williams, probably offensively. The fever, eh, debatable, <laughs> unfortunately, and so on and so forth. So I think that's one of the bigger things that's important when talking about this team in the in the, in the uh, being Chicago in the championship picture is you can take a player in Candace Parker, who even if she averages about 14 points and about eight rebounds a night, can put you can put her on your best player as a defensive stopper who can switch be versatile as a shutdown one-on-one defender and maybe not take that player out of the game but it definitely make their life way more difficult on the offensive end on the offensive end and then if she gives you buckets on the other end she's making your best player work which i think is one of those things that's really important in terms of talking about what the playoffs will be like Move, you know, when, when we get around that time. So again, maybe it's jumping out on, on a limb to say that a player that has, has missed time and has, isn't even averaging 15 points a game saying that she's the MVP. Maybe that's going out a little bit on a limb, but again, with her overall impact on both sides of the floor, along with the fact that this team literally, literally has not lost with her on the floor most valuable players at some point has to mean exactly what the phrase says. And from a value, from a value value standpoint, I mean, uh, Parker is at the top of the list. If not, like I said beforehand, top three in terms of her overall impact on her team's ability to win games. So I do think Candace Parker is a legitimate candidate for MVP, but I also want to throw out two other legitimate MVP candidates as Mm -hmm. part of my final topic for this episode. The Aces have not one, but two legitimate MVP candidates in Liz Cambridge and Asha Wilson. And they've had a great offense this season. They've become one of the best teams in the WNBA. The Aces as a team lead the league in scoring and shooting percentage, and they are second in the WNBA in assists and rebounds. Part of this offensive success has been because of the aforementioned Liz Cambridge and Asha Wilson. Cambridge is averaging 15 points a game and eight and a half rebounds, and keep in mind, Jalen, listen to this. She's shooting 60.5% from the field. She leads the league in that category. Aja Wilson, who was the MVP of the league last year, is averaging 18.5 points a game, eight rebounds, and three assists. These are two of the best players in the league, and both of them have a case to win MVP this year. But there's one thing right now that's holding them back for winning MVP, and that's other players. Brianna Stewart, Benaja Laney, Tina Charles, Candace Parker, John Quill Jones. This is a very, very talented category of MVPs this year. So I do think that there is a chance that a Las Vegas Aces player wins MVP, whether it's a first-time MVP in Liz Cambridge or a back-to-back winner in Aja Wilson. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to touch on is the fact that this team 
in Las Vegas is definitely back for blood. And with their uh, with their roster healthy, Cambridge back on the floor specifically, they have not lost a beat. If not, they've actually gotten better. And I think that's a really interesting point that you made about the MVP race. It's deep. And it's, I mean, nobody has really, you know, stuck their foot out there as the player to watch, the player that tone sets for the rest of the list. And I think that that's something that's going to really kind of uh, be an interesting plot point throughout the rest of the season. Um, I actually think that next time when we do our power rankings, we might also maybe sit down and make a make a top five MVP uh, race to kind of, uh, you know, put in perspective how we've seen things so far this season, whether it be on the next power rankings or our next looking at the landscape. But I think that would be an interesting exercise, considering that there's so many different routes that you could go and there's so many different iterations of the top five that you have. It's, I mean, this point. The top five that you could have could be the equivalent of a Subway sandwich. You can make so many different players as ingredients in this mix-up. And I think when you talk about Las Vegas, right, specifically, let's go back to Wilson and Cambridge specifically. Wilson's averaging 18.5 points per game. Cambridge has 15 points per game. They're both averaging eight rebounds a game. I think that is bizarre um, by itself. Dierica Hamby is another player that's been huge for them on the glass. One of those players that's averaging 6.3 rebounds per game. I think that the distribution across the board too is something that's been really crazy and low-key underrated. Six players averaging double figures across the board for this team with players like Kelsey Plum, Chelsea Gray, Jackie Young, all stepping up within their respective roles. I think that that's one of those things that really makes this team interesting because they are so deep. I mean, so deep. I think one of the other players that's low-key slept on, Jisoo Park, low-key slept on in the front court as a as one of those defensive stoppers. You look at the, their front court. Yes, you talk about Hamby, and of course you're going to lead with the headlines of two players and Aja Wilson and uh, Cambridge, who, by the way, are average or uh, have like I think they have like 43 blocks combined between the two of them. But guess who's third on the list? G. Sue Park with nine blocks at the center position, nine whole swats. So my big thing with that is. They go across the board where they have so many players that do really interesting things on the floor, whether it's offensively, defensively, or a combination of the two when you talk about maybe a player like Jackie Young or Aja Wilson. And I think Liz Cambridge is another player as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a two-way center that I think, I agree with you, could be in the running for uh, MVP. And the defensive player of the year award is probably one of those that as we get further down the season will be an even more interesting topic of debate. So, I mean, yeah, bro. I think at the end of the day, Seattle looks scary still, but Las Vegas, (laughs) they took what happened at the end of last season personally and being able to get one of their top players back has really made them look even more dangerous than they did last year, which says a lot considering the fact that they were just in the WNBA finals. I think the Las Vegas Aces taking it personally is an understatement. This team is a very legitimate can is a very legitimate title contender. And especially when you have not one, but two MVP candidates and then four potential all-stars on this team with Wilson, Cambridge, Plum and Gray. I think that this team is even more dangerous than we thought going into the season. And I think my, my 
prediction for the WNBA finals between the Connecticut Sun and the New York Liberty, that may or may not change as, as the season progresses because the Las Vegas Aces are for real this year. And transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, if there were a Las Vegas Aces player that would win MVP, who would it be, Liz Cambridge or Aja Wilson? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk Podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.